Welcome to Unboxing Queer History, a podcast from Gerber Hart Library and Archives. Gerber Hart is a library and archive with collections that focus on LGBTQ culture and history of Chicago and the Midwest. In each episode, we focus on the story of a particular collection in the Gerber Hart Library and Archive. Today's episode takes us inside the archive of a bookstore that not only changed the Chicago queer scene in the late 80s through the 90s, but had a hand in the inception of queer literature as a genre in the publishing world and beyond. This is Jules Gordon, the writer and co-producer of today's episode. We're Ari and Jules, and we're here to take you through a portal on Clark Street in Chicago to another time, another place. All right, where are we? We are at the former and forever site of the People Like Us bookstore. 3321 North Clark Street. (laughs) (laughs) I remember going through this collection with Jen and Aaron. It belonged to the former owner and also former board president, Carrie Barnett who you heard from already in our episode on Tilly, the dirty old lady of Chicago. If you haven't listened, I highly suggest going back and checking it out. We sifted through pictures of the bookstore, flyers from their opening event, and through tons of Polaroids of all the people who would do readings, performances, or events to promote their work. Guests who were kind of obscure then and now seminal figures for the queer community. So these are all Polaroids I'm looking through. So you might know Rita Mae Brown. Yes. Uh, Leah Delaria, which is amazing. Uh, we've got Leslie Feinberg. So these were all people that came and did readings at People Like Us and visited People Like Us books. Alison Bechdel, of course. Uh, posing with the owners. Posing with, yep, so that's, so that's Carrie, and I think that's Brett, too. Um, so yeah, and then she told me who this person was, um, but clearly a member of ACT UP with the shirt on, the silence equals death, and then there's Carrie and Brett. When I learned about the bookstore, I felt shook to my core. I'd never wanted to time travel so badly, to experience such a place, completely and utterly for people like me. Well, people like us. Sometimes I'll just like, on my bike, coming past here, I'll stand here, and I'll stand right here in front of the door, And I'll imagine, like, Carrie is actually standing right in front of me, and she's looking through me, but I'm looking right at her, because over on her side it's 1990, but over here it's 2021. And then I look in, and I, like, can see the shelves, and I can see the t-shirts on the wall. I can see the people coming and going. Also, I imagine, like, people are walking through me into the bookstore, and I'm like, yeah. I guess I've seen Ghost one too many times. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, when you when you hear stories and share stories, like, they do go through you. So, like, having spoken about this place and looked at pictures of it and held pieces of it, like, those things are going through you. So you, it's like, it is like you are having those experiences it's like you're a part of them, but ahead of time. And they're behind in time. But it's like, it's a beautiful... Without further ado, we invite you to join us for our episode on People Like Us. A bookstore that was so much more than a bookstore. From 1988 
through 1997. It was a, it was a unique place that I'm, I'm sorry that you couldn't have been there. That's Carrie Barnett. Hi, my name is Carrie Barnett. What do you want to know about me? Co-founder of People Like Us. I'm Brett Shingledecker. And there's her business partner and co-founder, Brett. Anybody that knows the two of us, I mean, they don't get much gayer than me or more lesbian than Carrie in my book. Brett and Carrie didn't start their friendship as bookstore owners, but found one another in a good old collision of circumstance. He was temping for me at my real job, which was at Northlight Theater. And uh, he said, we should open a business together. And I said, um, uh, okay. We were together for a few months. And during that time frame, where we're literally sitting next to each other, day in and day out, we would laugh our heads off every day. And at the end of the time, I had said, we need to do this every day. We need to go into business for ourselves so that we can laugh like this and carry on like this every single day. And that business was people like us. Our tagline was an exclusively gay and lesbian bookstore for Chicago. The way that we would identify it in today's language would be the LGBTQ bookstore for Chicago. Close your eyes just for a moment and we'll help you picture yourself at People Like Us. It was one of those, you know, long, skinny storefronts that, you know, of, of a million you can find in Chicago with the, with the tin ceiling and, you know, all of that. So as such, we designed it, I'll say first, that it was extremely important to Carrie and me that the space was physically inviting, comfortable, and a safe space. You came in and there were, <laughs> the, one of the most beautiful things about the store was the tile that we inherited from the space that had been there before us, which said aloha on the tiling when you entered. It was, um... It was at one time the, we found out earlier, and this isn't not really answering your question, but sort of a, a place called the Aloha Club, which somebody claimed was a gay men's bar in the 60s. And then we, you know, we tiled the front, like you stepped up two or three steps, great big plate glass windows uh, for street display onto Clark Street, green and, and, and white tiling was in the lower section and then there was like another step up maybe two steps up and then it was a green carpet after that and then at the end of the different bookshelves that weren't affixed to the wall we had some freestanding bookshelves we had little doric and ionic columns that were oh maybe about i don't know three feet tall that you could sit on so they weren't seats per se but they were designed so that people could take a book off the shelf and then sit on one of the columns and peruse their books. The shelves were all hand-built by a lesbian named Holly Jones. And with her, she had somebody who helped her. And then we did all the staining. And uh, I laid the tile floor, which freaked the crap out of Brett. 
PLU was located within a nest of five or six other bookstores along Clark. And not only was it the only queer bookstore, it was unique within that niche as well. We were the only, or maybe at the time we were the only um, LGBT bookstore that mixed our fiction. So we didn't have gay fiction, lesbian fiction. We just had fiction. And um, that was, people were taken aback. Like, how how am I going to find a book? It's like, well, don't you just want to read a good book? So it was sort of a it was sort of a, a noted thing. We did separate the erotica for obvious reasons, and uh, but that was really it. Everything else was all just what it was. Because PLU didn't separate gay writing from lesbian writing, it created an overlap, an interaction between two often polarized queer cultures that even today seems so separate and independent from one another. Brett and I had a really amazing opportunity to learn about each other's cultures in a way that I'm not sure a lot of people have. And I feel super fortunate about that. Like I learned so much about gay men by selling things to gay men and he learned about lesbians and, you know, it was all very, and and, I mean, that's like a gross generalization, but we learned about each other's cultures by working with each other all the time. We're all about, you know, enhancing the culture by learning about each other. And for Carrie and Brett and everyone who crossed the threshold of people like us, for that matter, this notion of enhancement by learning was brought far beyond the confines of the store. It was really kind of a special place to be. We were super lucky to get to be a part of that movement nationally, to be part of the development of queer literature by publishers, um, which was also part of it. And it was sort of a de facto queer people stop here when they first get to Chicago tourism sort of place, as well as a community center and a place where people who were coming out would come or a place where people whose uh, siblings had AIDS would come to find out information or where people would come to buy uh, erotica. That's, That's code for pornography. A wide range of clientele called upon PLU for a wide range of needs. Yeah, so we were like the 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 queer reference uh, section. There were shy calls. This woman called like 82 times from wherever she lived. She just was terrified. And her therapist had told her that she should come to the bookstore and get the book Lesbian Passion. And then she finally got to the store and she gets up to the counter and she like leans in and she whispers, do you have Lesbian Passion? And I wanted to tell her that indeed I did have lesbian passion, but I did not want to scare her. So I just got the book for her and gave it to her. And then and then she wanted to know what to do with it after she read it, like, like we were a library. And uh, so I said, well, uh, put it under your mattress. Scary calls. This guy called and just threatened to kill us, essentially. And so we called the police and he would call like every day and threaten to kill us. And so the police came and uh, they went one time the officer was there while it happened. And he was like, give me the phone. And he started talking to this guy about, you know, you can't do this. And it was it was pretty scary, honestly. 
long distance calls. We had somebody call from Italy. Like, I'm in Italy and I forgot to bring my Dameron guide. Can you tell me where the cruisy area is in this neighborhood in Rome? General information requests. Librarians would call us all the time. Which ear do you wear the diamond in if you are gay? That was a big one. Or we had the list of the hanky code. We had that right by the phone because people would always call to be like, you know, which side do I wear the red hanky in and what am I saying if I do? And so we would be like, one moment, please. Even calls from folks that weren't necessarily people like us's intended customer base. This straight guy calls on the phone and he says, my wife wants to get into um, some S&M stuff and I wondered if you had any books on that. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, we do. Well, do you have any, any heterosexual books on that? Uh, no, sir. This is a gay bookstore, so we do not. Well, well, why not? He was all indignant that uh, we did not have any heterosexual books about this. And, and I told him that I thought maybe the concepts were similar and that if he used his imagination, that he might be able to find ways to take the ideas from our culture and put them on his kind of like, you know, us in the entire world all the time. And he didn't understand that. And so he was kind of mad. And then he said, well, well, my wife is going to be really angry with me. And I said, well, I guess you'll just have to tell her you were a bad little boy, won't you? People Like Us was a big gay anchor in a world where queer members of society often felt lost at sea. In considering its importance to the community, Carrie recalls her first forays into finding resources. First as a teenager... When I was a freshman in high school, we had to write a term paper on some subject. So this was, what, 1974? And in 1973 was when the psychologists decided that being gay wasn't a mental illness. So I decided I was going to write this on homosexuality. And so I went to the the public library, and I took out as many books as I could with the word homosexual in the title so I could do research, wink, wink. And uh, so I, you know, and, and what's funny about it is that all of these books said it was a mental illness. So I'm like, oh man, what? And so I write this term paper. And then for some reason, I could not take those books back. I mean, just having them, even though they said it was deviant behavior, just to know that there was somebody else out there feeling the same way I was, was so valuable to me that I was willing to accept that it was deviant. And now I think about the whole deviance and like, yeah, I could go with that. But when you're 14, you don't want to be anything different. And then as a college student. I will tell you when I was in college, so it was probably 1979 and lesbian sex. Was that, was it, was that what it was called? It was like the joy of lesbian sex. That's what it was called. And there was that whole series. And so... My girlfriend and I wanted to buy that book, so I went to college in Columbia, Missouri, and so we drove to St. Louis to, to get this book because, number one, I don't think there was a bookstore here that would have it, and number two, what if somebody saw us? And so we went into a, like, 
Walden Books or a B. Dalton Books or whatever that generic um, bookstore was in, in the mall. And they had it. And we got up to the counter and she whips out her credit card. And I was, I mean, I was 19. I was completely flabbergasted that she would pay for this book with something that had her name on it. I mean, ha- what? So that's what it was like to buy uh, to buy books like it then. Carrie and so many other queer people lived for so long in a world where it was extremely challenging to find and learn from and about other queer people. And so for a brief moment in time, PLU was a prism that reflected everything and everyone across the queer spectrum. It was not uncommon to hear people say, um, meet me at PLU. I'm Steve Magalski, and I was a frequent shopper and frequent attendee of People Like Us Books. My name is Mary Boyle, and I shopped at People Like Us Bookstore from their opening until their closing. Hi, I'm George Thompson, and I was a loyal patron of PLU Books. It was a place of refuge. It was a place of creativity. A safe, welcoming space for those of us who are book nerds. PLU was the only place that you could get some of these books. You could pick up your weekly news of the community there. You could ask about your favorite authors and find similar authors. There was no question that they wouldn't at least try to help, even if they didn't necessarily have the answer to my obscure question sometimes. You were always greeted by somebody smiling and someone who would say, you know, hey, it's nice to see you. Can we help you find something? And there was just a sort of pervasive sense of friendliness. Carrie just kind of cocked her head to the side and looked at me and said, so how does it feel to be a professional lesbian? I burst out laughing. At that point, I knew that Carrie would be a treasured friend for the rest of my life. What was nice about the place is you would always run into people you knew. The very first time I went on my own was also the very first time I kissed a a guy. It just felt so liberatory. It felt so freeing to be in a space where I didn't have to look over my shoulder, where I knew I was with people who were either allies or members of the community. I miss that. I miss it so very much. There, there really aren't a lot of spaces like that today. As they say, all good things must come to an end. That'll make me really sad, but yeah. Um, so we were, our sales per square foot in the store on Clark Street were a multiple of the average, the national average. And I can't remember whether that was two times or three times the national average of sales per square foot of bookstores. And so the only way that we could grow our business was to move our business. And um, at that moment, uh, Brett decided that he just couldn't do it anymore. And so he he left and I bought out his, his part and I decided to move the bookstore to a location that was uh, two blocks 
west of the uh, Belmont L stop on, on Belmont in a building that I bought with uh, Tracy Bame and Kim Pierce who moved outspoken bikes there. And so we, we formed this uh, group and we bought this building and we did the renovation and we moved there and turns out people did not want to walk two blocks in the other direction. And so I'd spent, oh, I can't even tell you how much money I spent um, renovating this space and buying this building and trying to do it by myself. It wasn't as much fun without Brett. Um, then I had some personal things that happened. My, my dad died, my girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. You know, all the stuff that can happen to you in a year. And it, it, it broke me in a way that I was unable to help fix the problem of the bookstore being in the wrong location. And so pretty much one day I just locked the door and walked away. So it was pretty awful. <laughs> this queer realm, this concierge for the community was gone, is gone. This space where Anyone from any shimmer on the spectrum could come to learn about themselves and the ones they share light with closed. What does it mean when a truly, deeply queer space closes? What is left behind? It's all changed. I think in light of that, it makes places like Gerberhart that much more important and significant now. Brett explains that assimilation has wrapped its tendrils around queer spaces, especially bookstores and bars. Our ability to socialize in the ways that existed for us 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago has completely changed. So we live in a different time. A queer bookstore is subversive, is not subversive. A queer bookstore means something really different today. Due to assimilation, you know, you can buy queer books in Barnes & Noble. You can go to a bar where you'll notice some queers there as well. But it's not that like deep concentration it is subversive to find that like purely concentrated queer experience and queer environment. It's kind of like describing love. The feeling of like being in a place that is so gay and so safe. It's mm -hmm. just this feeling. Well, it's like a feeling of not holding anything back and being completely lost in something. Like, you aren't really having to think about your what else is going on. You know, when you are in love with somebody, when you are deeply in love with somebody, you're not really letting your other thoughts in. You're not paying as much attention to your environment. You're not thinking about other people. You're just in that space. And being in a purely queer space, you are fully yourself and you're only thinking about your sensual interactions with the space that you're in and not being like, do I need to act this way? Do I need to change myself for, for who I'm around? Um, 
you know, do I need to look for safety? Do I need to look for who I need to be around? Because you are just where you're supposed to be with who you're supposed to be with. Wow. That was a really good analogy. Thanks. <laughs> and so where is there to go now? Um, Gerberhart. Gerberhart Library. The experience that Carrie and Brett speak to of opening themselves up to learning about and understanding the experiences of other members of the queer community, the connections made through people like us, all of that is captured at Gerberhart. I hope that the people that were able to walk through this space take it with them now and like bring bring that experience and create that experience in the spaces that they occupy now, which is why Gerberhart is so important. Like it is you know, it is a tangible way to time travel into this and like be a part of this experience. It's like a a touchstone for for this. You know, it's crystals being broken up from the center of the geode and spread around. Carrie and Brett, thank you. There are so many people to thank for this episode. Brett Shingledecker, Carrie Barnett, Jen Dentel, Aaron Bell, and of course, thank you to my beloved friend Jules Gordon, who I know I'll be portal diving with for the rest of my days. We'd also love to thank Mary Boyle, Steve Magalski, and George Thompson for their PLU testimonies. Unboxing Queer History is co-created by me, Ari Mejia, Jen Dantel, and Aaron Bell. Theme music by Danny Robles. All additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. This episode was written by Jules Gordon and produced by Hannah Reedy and me, Ari Mejia. Special thanks to Rails for making this podcast possible. Unboxing Queer History is funded by a Rails My Library Is grant. You can find this episode and others at gerberhart.org or wherever you get your podcasts.